What started with a court hearing over the ownership of land on the outskirts of Jerusalem's old city has escalated into the bloodiest round of fighting between Hamas in Gaza and the Israeli military since 2014. The outbreak of fighting between the armed groups in the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip and Israel killed hundreds, mostly Palestinians, but also people in Israel. It came after months of simmering tensions over the court case to decide the fate of a dozen families in the Sheikh Jarrah area, but also elsewhere in the occupied eastern Jerusalem. It also came against the backdrop of a surge in support of far-right nationalist groups, propelling them to electoral gains in Israel amid a political crisis. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're headed to Jerusalem to understand the months of tensions that has led to the outbreak of fighting between Israel and Gaza. The Nationals correspondent Rosie Scammell, who is on the ground in Jerusalem, will bring us up to speed and talk us through what's happened in the months before the war began on May 10th, as well as what's at stake. She'll tell us about the intercommunal violence within Israel that the conflict unleashed, as they saw mobs rampage through the streets of mixed Arab and Jewish communities. We'll also hear from the Nationals reporter in Gaza, Nagam Mahana, on the war, on her reporting, and on life in the blockaded enclave. But first, if you want to get all the latest from Beyond the Headlines, just hit subscribe in your podcast app. The fighting exploded on May 10th, but underlying tensions had been building for months. This year, Ramadan was filled with unease. At the start of the Muslim holy month, Israeli police broke into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, a site revered by Jews and Muslims, and cut the cables to the loudspeakers that broadcast the call to prayer. Nearby, at the western wall below the mosque, the holiest site where Jews can pray, the Israeli president was set to make an address to mark Memorial Day. There were near nightly confrontations between Israeli police and Muslim residents when authorities banned gatherings at the old city's Damascus Gate, a popular meeting spot during the Muslim holy month. There was a march of ultra-nationalists near the site with chants of death to Arabs that descended into clashes in the street. It was a pattern of policing and attitudes in the city under Israeli control that Palestinians say is part of a concerted effort to displace them from their homes. East Jerusalem is a flashpoint in the wider Palestinian struggle. Israel conquered the eastern half of the city from Jordanian control in 1967 and later annexed it. Israel sees the holy city as the eternal undivided capital of the Jewish people, but the Palestinians also see the eastern part as the capital of their future independent state. Here's Rosie to tell us about the city and how those tensions play out. So firstly, Jerusalem has no physical border, although the city is clearly divided. So in the West, most residents are Jewish Israelis and they rarely go to the eastern part of the city where most Palestinians live. And before the pandemic, um, the city was filled with tourists, especially those that were visiting the old city's religious sites. Since then, we've come through three coronavirus lockdowns and most restrictions have been lifted, but there's still no foreign tourists and the city hasn't really returned to how it was before. The situation in Jerusalem changed about a month ago with Palestinians protesting at Damascus Gate after police stopped them from sitting there. 
There had already been weekly protests in Sheikh Jarrah over the eviction orders against Palestinians, and these just grew and grew. And I would say that two things really worsen the situation. First of all, the police use of force, and then also a rally that was held by Jewish extremists. And it was incredibly alarming when the violence reached the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, because from then it was clear that if the authorities didn't de-escalate the situation, then it could lead to a war. More specifically, a lot of the recent tensions have revolved around the fate of Sheikh Jarrah, a neighbourhood just outside the old city walls. Palestinian families who have lived in the area for decades risk losing their homes to Israeli settler groups in a long-running legal battle. The families have lived in the area after fleeing their homes in 1948, during the creation of Israel, that led to the displacement of 750,000 Palestinians. They were given homes in the area by Jordan, which then controlled the territory, in an agreement with the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. But settlers are now saying that they have no right to be there. Here's Rosie to tell us about the legal battle in Sheikh Jarrah. To understand what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah, there are two key pieces of legislation that you really need to know about. First of all, a 1950 law which prevents Palestinians returning to the homes that their families fled from when Israel was created. Secondly, there was new legislation which came in after Israel took over East Jerusalem in 1967. This says that if you can prove you own land or property in East Jerusalem decades earlier, then you can reclaim it. So from a legal perspective, it doesn't matter that Jordan built homes for Palestinians in the 1950s. If other people can prove prior ownership, then they'll win the case. The protests in Sheikh Jarrah were building ahead of a May 2nd eviction date, which was hanging over some of the Palestinian families. They were also waiting for the Supreme Court to rule on whether they could appeal against the eviction orders, but that hearing was pushed back. So now we may have to wait until early June before a new hearing is scheduled to know what will happen next. While the families push back in the courts, there have been protests in the neighbourhood as people rally around. But so too have settler and nationalist groups who back the idea of evicting the families gathered. An Israeli member of parliament, Ofer Kasif, was beaten by police at a protest in Sheikh Jarrah. Police have used tear gas, batons and stun grenades to disperse protesters. They've also deployed skunk trucks, water cannons that fire a foul-smelling water that lingers in the air like a noxious cloud. This is what Rosie has seen in recent weeks. Police are using every means at their disposal, both against peaceful, unarmed protesters and people that are throwing objects against them. I've seen police firing at people who are running away and who appear to pose no immediate threat as well as officers repeatedly throwing stun grenades, which explode next to passers-by. And it's very easy to get caught up in this violence. The skunk liquid itself is hard to describe. If you can try to think of the worst smell you can imagine, and then how it would feel to have it seeping into your skin, even if you're not hit by it. So for weeks, the mood in Jerusalem has felt like a powder keg, more so than usual. Then came Jerusalem Day when nationalists celebrate the capture of East Jerusalem. The ultra-nationalists planned a march through the Old City. Others planned to visit Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, where they're not allowed to pray. Hundreds of Muslims stayed over in the compound, determined to stop what they saw as a provocative encroachment into the holy site. Police raided the compound early on May 10th. Tear gas, stun grenades 
and explosions could be heard through the mosque, as police said they took action to stop dozens of people throwing stones from the site. While the authorities halted the visit of Jews to Al-Aqsa, groups demanding Israel take control of the religious site, which is under the custodianship of the Jordanian king, gathered nearby to protest. Throughout the day, police were clearing the streets of the old city. There were clashes in the narrow alleyways. By the end of the day, over 700 Palestinians had been wounded and 500 taken to hospital. In the aftermath, the march took place, although it was diverted from the old city's Muslim quarter at the last minute. Rosie was on the ground on May 10th. This is what she saw. I reached the old city in the morning after hearing that hundreds of people were wounded at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. An imam there told me that Israeli police had fired tear gas and stun grenades inside the mosque. Outside the compound at Lion's Gate to the old city, the floor was already covered in stones and the casings of stun grenades. I left that area after a stun grenade landed beside me, but throughout the day I saw police dispersing people with the same tactic, including in the narrow streets of the old city. That day I passed hundreds of riot police and the atmosphere was extremely tense, both because of what had just happened to Al-Aqsa and also the planned Jerusalem Day March. That march was diverted to avoid the Muslim quarter, but only at the last minute. And at that point, I saw police trying to block the route with lorries. And I was covering the Nationalists Rally, um, also known as the flag-waving march, on the edge of West Jerusalem when the sirens went off. And there was a lot of confusion at first before people started running for cover. And then I heard two booms in the distance. And that was the start of the Gaza War. While Israelis were still celebrating in the streets, rocket sirens sounded. Hamas, the armed group that controls the Gaza Strip, had issued an ultimatum to Israel, halt the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and remove police from Al-Aqsa or else. At 6pm that evening, Hamas fired a salvo towards Jerusalem, the first time that the area had been targeted since 2014. The attack sparked the bloodiest bout of fighting between Hamas and the other armed Palestinian factions in Gaza and Israel. In 10 days, thousands of rockets had been fired from the Strip and hundreds of airstrikes and artillery barrages had been fired back by Israel. Nakam Mahana was covering the conflict on the ground in Gaza throughout the fighting. What is happening in Gaza is actually a catastrophic. Everything is targeted. Nobody is safe. Around 63 children have died. Um, more than 200 civilian, Palestinian civilian, had died. So most of the casualties is from the civilian. They were at their home, they were sleeping, and suddenly they found themselves in the rub. This is, this is actually in, in, the, in the war of Gaza. Before, Israel used to warn people, but now suddenly the house is pumped and people are under the rubble. So this is a new method Israel is follow. We can't understand why that is happening. If Israel is targeting Hamas, so why all the casualties is from civilians? Amid the bombing, she reported on civilians whose homes had been destroyed in airstrikes and had sought shelter in UN schools. She spoke to those who'd lost family members in the blasts and saw the toll it was having on the already impoverished strip. I was at the hospital 
I met number of uh, children. They are less than five years old. Um, they got injuries uh, which cause disability for them. When I met doctors, they told me that there is a new method is followed in this war. They witness uh, something new in this war with the type of weapon that are used and the type of injury that they are dealing with. And they mentioned that most of the injuries are for children and for women. It's so sad to see uh, a child less than five years old will complete her life on a, a chair and in, on a wheelchair. And in the hospital, actually, there is poor facilities. They don't have a great experience to deal with such uh, injuries. So most of the patients are waiting to, 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 to leave Gaza for treatment because they need special treatment. So those patients have to wait and the time is not good for them. They left their home because the chilling is continuing in their area. They live in the borders area, north of the Gaza Strip and east of the Gaza Strip. So they flew their homes and they evacuated to the safest and secure place, which is the Anorwa school that is turned to shelters. Um, the situation there is so serious and dangerous because we are live with COVID-19, we have coronavirus, and the situation there is so dangerous, it's so uh, risky, because the crowded of people, you can find like thousands of uh, person inside one room, maybe you inside one school, inside each room, maybe you can find like 50 person inside one room, and this is so dangerous, these people doesn't have any, uh, they don't follow any procedures of protection against COVID-19. So after this end, I'm sure we will be in front of a catastrophic health situation in Gaza because of what is happening now. Doctors are not care now about following the case of COVID-19. They are concerned about the injuries that they uh, received from the attacks and the shilling. So after all of this over, they will be in front of a catastrophic situation regarding coronavirus. Jerusalem uh, case is a national case. So all Palestinians will react with this case. They will not stay silent. They were angry. They were angry because there were attacks against uh, unarmed people who just were in Al-Aqsa Mosque to protect their place, to protect their religious place. They just want to practice their religion safe. But when uh, Israel uh, start to attack them, this make people so angry and people want a reaction against this attack. They want something to stop those attacks against people in Jerusalem. There is a heavy shelling from Israeli tanks and Navy and war plants. Everything is targeted. Many houses destroyed. People think maybe they are doing such 
actions because we are going to a ceasefire. But until now, there is no any news about ceasefire. People are waiting for those news. They want for sure ceasefire. They, they want to, to feel insane. Gaza's street is not the same. Devastation is everywhere. Many places are targeted and destroyed completely. Those places were full of life before. Now it's full of devastation and it's full of um, rubble. It's a tragic uh, situation. People want to end this uh, war, but I'm sure since they will get out from their homes and see what is happening and see what is the situation on the ground. They will stay at their home. They don't want to get out. They don't want to see what is going on on the streets now. But it's not just in Gaza that there's been destruction. Israel has a sophisticated rocket defense system called the Iron Dome that's able to track and shoot down many rockets. But some still get through. Day after day and night after night, Air raid sirens sounded in Israeli towns near the Strip as people ran for safe rooms and bomb shelters and the Iron Dome interceptors whizzed through the sky in search of projectiles fired at Israeli communities. Shops hit with the flying bombs were blown out. People hit by the blasts or the flying twisted shrapnel were killed. One of those was Abu Shadi and his 16-year-old daughter. Rosie went to the town to see what was happening. The rocket hit in a rural area on the edge of Lod, which is in central Israel, and it left a gaping hole in the ground. One of the cars outside was a complete wreck and there was melted plastic hanging off the mirror and the front of the house was covered in shrapnel marks. The family that I spoke to said they'd been sitting outside the home when the rocket hit and the Iron Dome, Israel's defence system, didn't intercept it, and they said that they didn't have anywhere to go, either a safe room or a shelter nearby. As well as the fighting raging between the Israeli military and the armed groups in Gaza, there was also an explosion of anger on the streets of several Israeli cities. In places like Lod, an industrial town near Tel Aviv, with drab rows of grey homes, 40% of the population is Arab. Musa Hasuna, a 32-year-old Arab Israeli, was shot and killed in clashes. At his funeral the next day, protesters torched cars, hurled stones and Molotov cocktails. Egal Yehoshua, a 56-year-old resident of Lod, was hit by stones when his car was attacked. He later died. A man identified as an Arab resident of Israel was dragged from his car on the streets of Ramat Gan, near Tel Aviv, and beaten in what officials described as an attempted lynching. The violence led to calls for calm from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as well as top religious figures and politicians, even as the president warned that the country was headed towards civil war. The mob violence that we've seen has so many different causes. I'd say it was fueled by the events in Jerusalem and the West Bank and Gaza, but it's also related to inequality and discrimination within Israel. Some commentators say that the extreme rhetoric from political leaders has also found the flames of this. The violence did shock some Israelis and there were online discussions about whether it was safe to go out at night. And given the random nature of the attacks, these fears were often justified. When I was in Lod, for example, before dark, the car in front of me was attacked by a mob and there was at least one case of a journalist being specifically targeted. 
In response to all this, a small number of Israelis held unity rallies of Jews and Arabs getting together, but unfortunately, many people took a really one-sided view of the violence. Analysts have drawn a line from the protests back to Israel's political situation. The country is in crisis. Netanyahu is facing a corruption trial, and the country could be headed towards its fifth election in just two years, as round after round of voting brings a very similar result leading to a fragile coalition, if it yields a coalition at all. As time has gone on, far-right parties have been making gains, and Netanyahu has been accused of courting these voters and their politicians in order to keep power. Despite the Gaza conflict, the clock is still ticking for Israel's leaders to form the next government and avert another election. As the bombardments continued in Gaza and rocket fire flew out at Israel, there were protests around the world calling for a halt in the violence. On May 18th, Palestinians across Israel and the occupied territories downed tools, shut shops and staged rallies in a national strike. The general strike was an uncommon show of unity by Palestinian citizens of Israel, who make up around 20% of its population, and those in the territories that Israel seized in 1967 that the Palestinians have long sought for the future state. Hundreds of Palestinians burnt tyres in Ramallah and hurled stones at Israeli military checkpoints. Troops fired tear gas and protesters picked up some of the canisters and threw them back. At least three protesters were killed and more than 140 wounded in the clashes with Israeli troops in Ramallah, Bethlehem, Hebron and other cities, according to Palestinian Health Ministry. The Israeli army said that two soldiers were wounded by gunshots to the leg. The strikes were largely an act of unity and symbolism, but it also highlighted how reliant Israel is on Palestinian employees. Much of Israel's service sector, building sector and transportation sectors rely on Arab workers. Israel's transportation ministry said that 910 bus drivers, about 10% of the total, just didn't show up for work on May 18th causing major delays and closures to various routes. Just 150 of the 65,000 Palestinian construction workers in Israel showed up to sites because of the strike. Haaretz newspaper quoted the Israeli Builders Association, saying it had cost the trade nearly $40 million. Top security officials in Egypt moved quickly to try and mediate an end to the conflict, almost as soon as it had started. The UN, the US and others called for calm, but Israel said it would continue until its military plan was complete. But ultimately, the end of this round of fighting is about a ceasefire, not about peace talks. The Arab-Israeli peace process has stalled. Neither side has met for over a decade, and there is little hope that a lasting solution can be found anytime soon. Certainly not without concerted international efforts. Thanks this week to Rosie Scammell in Jerusalem, and to Naghan Mahana in Gaza City. We were produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. If you want to hear more from Beyond the Headlines, hit subscribe in your podcast app. And while you're there, why not leave us a review?